Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all of the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. There are many other traditions they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels in dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do, you, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother and whoever reviles your father or your mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given by God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Isaac. Thank you, buddy. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Disciples Church. It's great to see you. Uh, my name is Dave Hahn. Really, really glad that you have decided to join us for worship tonight. Um, as always, and I do mean this, it is my incredible privilege to be able to open God's word with and for you. So one of my longest and best childhood friends is a guy named Lloyd. Uh, we met in high school, played in countless bands. Uh, we were roommates together for a while. The two of us always had and continue to have these really great conversations when we were roommates. They would often be late night conversations about life, about music, about God. And one night we got to talking about the many differences one could find under the umbrella of Christianity. Now having grown up in a home where I was baptized Greek Orthodox, which I think many of you know, and I spent two years in Catholic school and had spent then a significant amount of time in the Lutheran church uh, after we had moved, I had a lot of personal context and experience with different traditions and with different approaches to the worship of God. Those three are pretty varied. But all that experience also meant that I was very confused. So one night, I had asked Lloyd this question, who had grown up Lutheran. I said, how is someone supposed to know the right way to love and follow God? Catholics do this, and Lutherans do and say that, and others do and say something completely different. And then Lloyd said something that changed my life forever. He said, 
why don't you just open up the Bible, read it for yourself, and let that guide you? I was like, that is it. That's it. And that thought, if I'm honest, had had never occurred to me until right at that moment. And this is the most amazing thing. Even though Lloyd would not identify as a believer today, I think his words in that moment were a revelation unto me from God himself. Now, I would love to tell you, it'd be a great story if I told you that from that day forward, I surrendered to God's word and that my life was forever changed, but it took some time before I could make such a claim because it's hard to surrender and it's difficult to submit. Sin makes sure of that. Our pride gets in the way, our religious efforts and the pushing to be religious messes things up. And we end up living as rebels rather than the redeemed. Thankfully, as we see in Mark 7, it is rebels that Christ came for. So as Mark 7 begins, we see Jesus encounter religious leaders from Jerusalem. Those who had first received God's law, they had first received God's word and had its first five books memorized. And those are not small books. Men from the same group, if you remember, had first confronted Jesus in Mark 3 and accused him of being demon-possessed, of having an unclean spirit within him, even though he was casting demons out of other people. Which led Jesus to ask them rightly, can Satan cast out Satan? But here in these first five verses of Mark 7, we see them accusing Jesus and his disciples of being unclean in a new way, through disobedience to their traditions. Through disobedience to their traditions. Listen again to verses one through five as Isaac read them for us. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Friends, the conflict between the religious leaders and Jesus in these first five verses was not about obedience to the word of God. It was about the fact that Jesus would not recognize or participate in the tradition of their elders. The elders, by the way, were the scribes and the rabbis and the teachers who had preceded them, their forefathers, as it were. And the scribes and the Pharisees in these first five verses were not asking Jesus an honest question because they had already made up their mind about Jesus. They were already plotting to kill him. They were not evaluating Jesus against God's word, but against the measure of their religious traditions. 
It's right there in verses 3 and 5, 8 and 13. That is what's going on here. The religious leaders had made their traditions equal to, if not superior to, Scripture itself, including the tradition of ceremonial hand-washing. They had made their traditions superior to the Word of God. And friends, it is critical to understand that ceremonial washings were commanded by tradition, but not by the Word of God. And the religious leaders knew it. They knew it. Generally speaking, the Old Testament laws prescribe things that are somewhat practical and obvious to keep the the Jewish people healthy, to keep them alive as long as they could. Things like wash your hands, don't drink blood, that's a great one, and pay attention to what goes into your mouth. Those things are still practical and obvious for us today. The hand-washing thing has gotten slightly more elevated, right? (laughs) But for men like these, it wasn't enough to clean your hands for sanitary purposes. According to their tradition, you would have to first wash your hands to make them physically clean, right, the way that we would. Then you're to perform a certain ritual to make them spiritually clean. Now, the only other ceremonial washings found in the Old Testament were specific to the Levitical priesthood as a way of demonstrating the need for one's cleansing from sin as part of their priestly duties. It was a priestly thing. But that's not what this was. That's not what they were doing. Pharisees and scribes had come from Jerusalem to accuse and condemn the very one who gave them the laws and the commandments that their traditions claimed to protect. The irony and the hubris of that. For these men, the law had taken a back seat to their traditions. And the lawgiver was now on trial. That is the true nature of this conflict. That's what we're seeing in verses one through five. Now the Jews have a collection of sayings and teachings found in a book called the Mishnah. Maybe some of you have heard that. I think now it's the Mishnah and then another explanation of the Mishnah and those two books combined are called the Talmud. But the Mishnah was a collection of these sayings and these teachings that were really, had then ultimately been written down from the traditions that these Pharisees and scribes are talking about. And these traditions obviously were first passed on orally from person to person, from generation to generation. And so I wanted to be able to share a few of these sayings with you so that you can better understand the hearts and the minds of these men. So when I talk about traditions being elevated above scripture, I want you to hear the level to which that rose. Because we wanna understand the hearts and the minds of these men, but we also wanna understand that there are still men and women among us who operate this way, whether they recognize it or not. So these are quotes out of the Mishnah or ultimately the Talmud. If the scribes say our right hand is our left and our left hand is our right, 
we are to believe them. If the scribes say it, we're to believe it. Here's another one. There is more in the words of the scribes than the words of the law. He who expounds the scriptures in opposition to the tradition has no share in the world to come. Scriptures in opposition to the tradition has no share in the world to come. And the last one, it is a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than to contradict scripture itself. Do you hear it? It's not even equal. It's not even close to being equal. Words and ideas like these were held in the highest regard by Pharisees and scribes and would guide them in their daily practices. But not so for Jesus or his disciples. Jesus spoke as one with his own authority. It amazed crowds. Jesus operated as one who fed on the word of God alone. Think back to his temptation in the wilderness. Think of all the times that we hear Jesus say that I have food to eat that you're not even aware of. The word of God. And Jesus lived independently of and without regard for the traditions and the teachings of men that had become so beautiful and beheld in the Jewish mindset of his day. And what likely began with exposition and instruction of the word of God, what likely began with an intent to protect God's law, turned into an idol turned into a law unto itself for men who wanted Jesus dead. Their intent may have been pure, but where they landed was idolatry. And that is what can make man-made traditions, rituals, and celebrations so dangerous. Many of our own Traditions and celebrations find their roots in unshakable spiritual foundations and thinking. If we were to dig into why we do the things that we do, even things that globally people observe, Christian or not, they have roots in strong spiritual foundations. But if we are not careful, as we have seen, the words of man, our traditions and religious activities can become more important to us than the word of God and replace the person of Jesus Christ in our hearts and minds if he was ever there to begin with. Friends, the word of God has been, is now, and forever will be sufficient. It is and must remain the central source of truth for a Christ follower. Because the Bible is the one revelation of God that is absolutely true and there is nothing, nothing beyond it. No other words of men, 
No other words of man, spoken or written, are necessary for us to know and understand who God is, what he has done, and how we ought to live. No other words of man are necessary for those things. And if I'm honest with you, as I thought about this this week, I am fearful for the growing number of pastors, teachers, and leaders who are turning away from God's all-sufficient word, perhaps for the sake of church growth, perhaps for the sake of a false peace, a false unity, or a false relevancy in our culture. I am terrified and all the more devoted to make sure that Disciples Church is a church that holds itself under the word of God. Charles Spurgeon was right when he said, if we want revivals, if we want revivals, we must first revive our reverence for the word of God. If we want revivals, we have to revive our reverence for God's word. Now that doesn't mean that we can't read other things or that we shouldn't listen to other people. But if the focus of whatever it is, is placed more on us than it is on Christ himself? Or if our problems are said to come from the outside rather than within? Or that the solutions to those problems are man-made rather than God-given? It must be questioned. And if what is being done or what is being said does not line up with the word of God, it must be rejected outright. Friends, if we love God, we will love his word. And where we do not love and revere God's word, we sin. We sin. And we deceive ourselves and others which leads us to verses eight through 13. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Now, just to be clear, we're not skipping over verses six and seven. I'm just saving it for last. So we'll get there. But in verses eight through 13, Jesus rebukes these leaders through pointing out their duplicitousness and their hypocrisy. In verse 10, we see Jesus make reference to one of the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses, honor your father and your mother. And then he mentions someone named Corbin. I'm just kidding. It's, Corbin's not a who. It's a what. It is a word, Corbin, that refers to an offering devoted to God. And on the surface, that seems wonderful. But here's what Jesus knew about the men who were accusing him. These pious men had aged parents who were in need. And rather than help them financially, 
They claimed to have given their money to God as Corbin. And here is the most deceptive part of the whole thing. Their own highly esteemed teaching, sayings, and traditions gave them the freedom to break the vow of Corbin they had made to God and give the money to someone else, including themselves. Hide that money away with the intent of saying that this is for God, and then after mom and dad pass away, after they have not helped them, the money becomes theirs again. So Jesus saw into the hearts and the minds of men like these, men who pretended to honor God and his word, but in actual fact were hypocrites. Liars, actors, pretenders, fake worshipers. Men who praised God with their lips, but whose hearts were very far from him. And that is the worst form of hypocrisy. Honoring God with our lips while our hearts are very far from him. Verses six and seven. And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So I saved verses six and seven for the end because I think it is the key verse or the key verses to understand this entire passage. That phrase, in vain do they worship me. Vain worship. As one pastor put it, vain worship is empty useless, pointless, lifeless, and hypocritical worship. Worship that was directed at the right God, but in the wrong way. Worship directed at the right God, but in the wrong way. Those words of Jesus in verses six through seven come from Isaiah 29 written to a people who were doing what was prescribed in the Old Testament. Sacrifices, temple worship, all the rest. Holding to the letter of the law, but they were doing so without a heart and a love for God. What their lips declared, their hearts rejected. Earlier in that same book, Isaiah chapter one, we hear God say, These are hard words to hear. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. 
Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's case. Imagine having those words directed at you from God. I've had enough. I do not delight. You're trampling my courts. Bring me no more vain offerings. It is an abomination. I cannot endure it. I am weary. I will hide my eyes, and I will not listen. These are the words that God has for outwardly religious people whose hearts are not for him. Words for the men in Isaiah's day, for sure. But also, as we read, for the men who are accusing Jesus. And many men in our own day. Many men in our own day. Friends, there is no right, R-I-T-E, right, no ritual or any good deed that can satisfy God's demand for righteousness. If there were, Jesus could have stayed home. There is no right ritual or tradition that is more pleasing in God's eyes than the perfect life and death of his own son. And we mock Christ's death when we live as though there is, that we can add to what Jesus has already done. We mock him. We worship him. We do not worship him when we live as though we do not need him. Or that more needs to be done to satisfy God's just demands. You and I and no one else can put God into our debt through obedience to any law, tradition, or ritual. We don't get to say to God, didn't you see what I did? But that's how these religious leaders live. And it's how many among us live today. And maybe it's how someone in this room is living right now. Friends, religion will not lead you to God. But worship from the heart will. Jesus, in talking with the woman at the well in John 4, said this, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Worship that God accepts is rooted in the truth of who God is as he has revealed himself in scripture by his spirit. And it emanates from that spirit with a heart that loves and obeys him. That's what worship looks like. As one author put it, Christ accepts no obedience to him that does not proceed from our love for him. He accepts no love to him that does not proceed from our love for him. So when you're obedient, does it flow from a heart of love? 
And while it is certainly sinful to worship the wrong God, as this passage soberly demonstrates, it is just as serious to worship the right God in the wrong way. These religious men, my friends, claimed to worship the same God as you and I, but their hearts were far from him. They were on their way to hell with clean hands. Why? Because they worshiped God in vain. Not from the heart. Not in the spirit. And not based on the truth of God's word. Rather, according to verse 7, They taught as doctrines the commandments of men. The commandments of men had to become equal to, if not superior to, the very word of God. So my guess is that many of you are finding yourself in one of two places right now. You're doing some serious introspection and examination of your own heart, and that's a good and right biblical thing to do. Or maybe you're disassociating yourself from these challenging passages because you don't do the things that the Pharisees and the scribes did. And while it is true that ceremonial washings are not part of our religious practices, my question to you is what ideas or practices have found their way into modern Christianity or into your life in particular that have no grounding in God's word. What ideas or practices have found their way into your own life, into our church life, that have no grounding in God's word? Ultimately, that lead us into false worship. Have you heard or maybe even believe any of these. These are some modern ones that I can think of and you may have your own. These are things that we talk about as though they're the words of God to us. To thine own self be true. Who's heard that one? Cleanliness is next to godliness. God helps those who help themselves. God will not give you more than you can handle. As long as you do more good than bad, you'll go to heaven. Do you know that none of those phrases or ideas are found in the Bible and that most of them are actually heretical? And yet, these false principles and ideas are oftentimes more contended for and adhered to and beloved than the very word of God. Friends, it is possible to appear religious or spiritual on the outside, but be very far from God within. Have you ever heard somebody say, I was talking the talk, but not walking the walk? That's what's meant by hypocrisy. Habitually living in such a way that the outside does not match the inside. Now, I can't help but wonder if God would have had similar words for you and I today as he did for the religious leaders. They attend church, they sing, they read their Bible, and they pray, but their heart is far from me. They give, they do ministry, they preach, and they talk to others about Jesus, but their heart is far from me. 
In 2009, I first heard the word ecumenical. Has anybody just heard that word for the first time? It's okay if you have, I'm gonna explain it. All right, good. Me and Lucas and Isaac. <laughs> so I, I didn't know what it meant, but I heard it at a church conference, and so I, I looked it up and discovered that it refers to different church traditions and denominations. So when I read the definition, I was like, oh, I'm ecumenical. <laughs> they should put a picture of me next to ecumenicals, like this guy. And because of my ecumenical background, I'm familiar with the breadth and the depth of traditions and sacraments that they have the potential to stir our hearts in worship of God or to become idols. I like to think about and reflect on the moments of my life where God's hand is so evident through some of those very traditions and practices, even though I may have missed the fullness of the beauty of them at the time. So here's one great example. In the Lutheran tradition, young teenagers are given the opportunity to participate in something called confirmation. I'm sure most of you have heard that. It's essentially an opportunity for a young man or woman to affirm the promises their parents made at their baptism, to declare unto God and to declare unto their church congregation that they intend to continue in their faith walk with Jesus. And there are classes to attend and there were things to do as part of being confirmed. So I decided to participate in the classes and the activities, but not in the ceremony because my parents told me that I was already confirmed as a baby. Part of the Greek Orthodox tradition is you're baptized, confirmed, and christened all at once. I don't know why. So instead, I decided to serve as an acolyte for the service, the kid that wears the robe and lights the candles and those things. So I decided to do that. And after the ceremony, I received a gift from our pastor as a way of saying thanks for participating in the class and serving as an acolyte for the service and throughout that year. And while I doubt that he would have thought I still have it, after 35 years, I still do. And I keep it in my closet where I see it every day. Little show and tell. It is a wooden plaque, not really wooden. It's got a wooden laminate on the front of it, and it's particle board on the back. But it's a wooden plaque that says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. That's from Psalm 119, verse 105. And it sits in my closet right where I see it every day, and I've had it since I was 13. It's written in the King James English, right, with thy thing. And it has been a real blessed reminder to me no matter where my life was with God, ever since I first received it. But it wasn't until 21 years ago that I truly began to surrender to his word and believe that, that his word was a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And now it has become the highest source of truth in my life, which doesn't mean that I always do what it says because I don't, but I don't argue with it as much. And I don't justify it when I'm disobedient to it. And that, in part, is what it means to be a worshiper. We worship when we kneel and we bow our will to his. Fourteen years after having received that plaque, its words reappeared in a very special and unexpected way. 
Without this man understanding its significance to me, the pastor who married Sheila and I used it as the foundation for his message to us during our wedding ceremony. That was the foundation of what he had to share with us, that God's word would be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And he even inscribed it in a couple's Bible that he gave to us as a gift. It was if God was saying to me, I have been drawing you all along and I wanted to make sure you knew it. Now remain in me and let my words remain in you. And here's the ironic part. Even this plaque inscribed with the very words of God can be a dead, lifeless, and meaningless object if it doesn't remind me of, stir my affections for, and point me to the one whom the words speak of. To the living word, Jesus Christ. My friends, God's word by his spirit is the only thing that can lead and guide us unto truth and ultimately the worship of God himself because the type of worshipers God seeks are those who worship in spirit and truth from the very depths of our being rooted in the truth of who he is. Not a God of our own making, but the God revealed to us in Holy Scripture by his spirit. So, is your life one that is rooted in man's traditions, rituals, and observances more than it is grounded in the word of God? Are you more influenced and stirred by the sayings and the practices of man than you are the spirit of God? Is truth just a relative and subjective thing to you? Or do you believe that God's objective truth is found in his word? And it spans all time, all people, all circumstances. And it is embodied in his son, Jesus Christ. Are you willing to turn from the hypocrisy in your life and unto Jesus If you are, then God would say to you, as he said unto his people in Isaiah chapter one, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. My friends, in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the living word of God, God's promise to forgive us, the shall be has become the is His promise to forgive us, redeem us, and give us eternal life was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 1 has been fulfilled for those who would believe. So how could we not want to love and worship him with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our might? Let's pray. Who are we, Lord, that we should make any claim on you or have any part or portion in you when we are not worthy to even untie the sandals of your feet? God, you hold out your mercy to us and you bid us to come. We would be undone to rebel against you in false humility, so we bow our souls to you. 
With all possible thankfulness, we accept you as our own and we give ourselves up to you, our King. Would you be sovereign over us? You will be on the throne and we will bow all of our strength to you. We will come and worship before your feet. You have called for our hearts and while we are unworthy, we freely give them to you. Would you mold our heart after your own and make it as you would have it, humble, soft, tender, responsive, and then write your law on it. We come to you as the only way to the Father, as the only mediator, the very means that God ordained to bring us to himself. We have destroyed ourselves, but in you is our help. Never was the wage more due to the workers than death and hell are due to us. But we trust alone the value and virtue of your sacrifice, knowing that you will always intercede for us. We submit to your teaching and choose your government over us. Stand open everlasting doors that the King of glory may come in. Amen.